become in the last year a fan of the Dog Whisperer. I don't know how many of you have watched Caesar Milan? I love the way it starts. No dog is too much for me to handle. I rehabilitate dogs. I train people. I am the dog whisperer. <laughs> I just love this show. This guy is like so amazing at helping these these dogs, high aggression dogs. I don't know why I got into it. We've been thinking about getting a dog. We ended up getting a dog. I watched this show. I'm like, how does he do it? One of the things that he focuses on or or that he points out is that a a fixated dog, an obsessed dog, can be harmful to itself or to other people. The the dog is locked on to something. It could be a toy. It could be another animal. It could be a game like fetch. It's comparable to like an addiction for humans. The dog is stuck. You know, he, even the way that Caesar does this, he makes these faces like, like, did you see the dog right before he bit that other dog? He was like, ears forward, he does all these faces and stuff. And you can really see it, it in, in dogs, they get stuck, they get focused on something and they get intense. And it's important to break that fixation, it's important to break the dog's attention. And so you do, you know, you put a piece of food in front of its nose to redirect its attention or you give certain types of corrections to to just kind of snap the dog out of it because if you don't it's going to hurt something and dogs don't reason and so they're very different than us dogs don't have sinful hearts behavior doesn't flow from some sort of sinful rebellion against god in a dog but you know what there are some similarities here So we're not going to take dog psychology and apply it to human beings, but there is a similarity here in the sense that with human beings, we too can become fixated. We get stuck in ways of thinking or stuck in behaviors or stuck in desires that are harmful for us. We can't break it. We are stuck in addictions or patterns of thought or perspectives, mentalities, states of being that keep us from being and living in a way that Jesus intends for our lives because we're not fixated on Jesus Christ. And so we get stuck in things like cynicism or hopelessness. Anyone who, you ever talk to anybody who is, is, is seriously depressed, they feel stuck. They're trapped. Fear, anger, pride. It's like a form of imprisonment. You're, you're saying to yourself, I'm always, I'm always responding this way. I'm always so angry. I'm such a cynic. And I can't get out of it. And you know... If you struggled with this, you know that it's not as simple as merely making a choice to be upbeat or to be positive or hopeful or trusting because cynicism, hopelessness, fear, pride, these states of existence are not things that we simply pick to have or not to have on a daily basis. There's something else at play here that goes deeper than mere willpower. Namely, 
It's the heart and the affections. Hopelessness, worry, fury. These are not things that we simply decide to stop feeling. Affections don't function on a switch. And it's important that we understand this about ourselves when we come to verses like 1 Thessalonians 18. I'm just going to read back from verse 16. because Paul just pops off a few things here real quickly. He says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. I thought this is a good Thanksgiving verse. Give thanks in all circumstances. Notice it doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. Or literally from the Greek, give thanks in all things. No matter what you're facing, there should be some ability to give thanks. And and I want to try to help us unlock that today because Paul says that we should give thanks in all circumstances, but I presume that Paul holds Jesus' view of hypocrisy. What does Jesus think about people who say thank you and don't feel thankful? What do you think Jesus thinks about that? Matthew cha- or Mark, sorry, chapter 7, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. That's what he thinks about it. You hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So there's no way that Paul is teaching us here that we should be giving thanks void of a thankful heart. The giving of thanks that ought to be occurring in all circumstances is to be an expression of genuine gratitude to God that's flowing from our hearts. And if you're like me, that you, 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 this is a serious problem. Because I don't always feel gratitude to God in all circumstances. And even though I might be able to habitually say the words, thank you God, It doesn't mean that I'm doing what Paul says I ought to be doing here. There's a difference between saying thank you and giving genuine thanks to God. Because true gratitude is an affection. It comes from the heart. It's something you feel. And it works on the 2-4 principle. Gratitude is an affection that you feel toward someone for something that they have done, or something that they have given. The two-for principle. I'm thankful to you for what you have done. And far too often, I don't feel thankful to God for what He has done, or what He is doing, or what He has given, or is giving in these circumstances, and I don't feel that gratitude because I'm, per, I'm failing to perceive the goodness of what he's doing. And if I don't see the goodness of what he's doing, how can I thank him for it? So this is the problem. And here's what I want to try to do today. I want to try to identify some of the things that our minds and our affections are fixated on. Mentalities perspectives 
that keep us stuck in ungratefulness because we fail to perceive the goodness of what God is doing in all circumstances. I want to provide for us some alternative ways of thinking in hopes that we can unlock and trigger some genuine gratitude from the heart. Because the mind actually does play a role in the process. As I said, the mind doesn't, does, isn't able to simply just choose whether or not it's going to feel gratitude, but the mind can do something. What it can do is it can learn how to see the world, it can learn how to see circumstances, it can learn how to see people through the lens of Scripture. So as we choose, by the grace of God, to view the world through a new lens, a biblically informed lens, then the Holy Spirit can enable us to start to see things from a different perspective, from God's perspective. That's what I want to do. I want to see things from God's perspective as I look at what He's doing through the lens of Scripture. And when we start to see things from God's perspective, we can start to see value in things that at one point in our lives held no value to us. And once you start seeing value in what God is doing, then the door is open to give thanks to Him for what He is doing. Does that make sense? So we've got to try to trigger some gratitude here by shifting our perspective on things. So here's what we're going to do. Five things that will help us to be grateful in all circumstances. So there are more things that could be said here. But here are five ways that we can start to look at our lives through a new lens, perhaps, and see something valuable that we haven't seen before because we're now seeing it through the glasses of the Scriptures. And I'm going to focus on things that are typically difficult to be thankful for. Typically difficult to be thankful for certain types of things because you see no value in what's taking place. So that's what we're going to focus on. Here's number one. We can be thankful for this. The world is not our home. We can be thankful that the world is not our home. You see, one of the reasons it's hard to give thanks is because we slip into seasons of hoping in and loving the world. We, we become fixated on the temporary order, the systems, the values, the pleasures of our world as though it were ultimate. Now, we would never say that theologically as Bible-reading Christians, right? We all know better than to say we love, we're in love with the world and this world is our home because the Bible says over and over again things like do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, 1 John chapter 2. So we know because we read the Bible that this world is not ultimate. But you know, I think we get wrapped up in it. And I think we forget that this place cannot be and will not be restored and functioning in the way that it is supposed to be until Jesus returns. It's a condemned house. You should think of living in this world as living in a house that has been condemned. This is not our destiny. And if it were our destiny, then we would have plenty of reasons right now to be very, very fearful about what's happening in our world. 
global economy coming apart, Iran's nuclear trajectory, assassination attempts, pedophiles. I mean, this place is a mess. We're a mess. Perhaps we can do some things to relieve a little bit of the problems, comfort some people in suffering, bring some justice where there's some injustice, so that while we live in this condemned home, we make it as nice as we possibly can. But the world is passing away along with its desires. And our hearts are going to run into huge problems if we have the expectation that this world can become something it simply cannot and will not become. makes it very hard to be thankful when you are expecting this global Titanic to float. It's not going to make it. It's not going to make it. Something better is coming. Thank God something better is coming. The Bible consistently tries to rescue us from this perspective by calling us to put our hope fully on what is to come. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Or 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The shaking of the things in this temporary world should not make the heart of the Christian tremble. The shaking of these things should cause us to remember that we have received an unshakable kingdom because of what Jesus has done. This is what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12. He says, verse 26, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, the the author of the Hebrews says, author of Hebrews says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. God's going to remove it. And to shake it, remove it. That is, the things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful, he says, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And perhaps that's you this afternoon that needs to hear God's call to you to repent of your hope in this condemned home. You're investing in a condemned home like you're going to live here forever. Perhaps God is calling you to relinquish your hope in and your love for this world. And as that happens, I trust that the Holy Spirit will let you taste afresh the goodness of what's to come. Stir afresh in your heart gratitude, even though the walls are crumbling on this place. I mean, the world, the plaster is coming off the wall of this world right now. I'm so glad that this is not all there is. Thank you, Lord.
We can be thankful for this as well. Number two, the world is run by wisdom, not by justice. That's interesting. God is running the world according to his wisdom, not according to his justice. Here's what I mean. God's way of running this world leaves us with a million questions about why he allows bad things to happen. There are some very real, some very genuine injustices in the world, things that have wounded us very, very deeply, things that are wounding other people or have wounded other people very, very deeply. It might range from fairly minor offenses to just outright atrocities, things that get on your nerves or some things that make your soul cringe. And in our hearts, we find it difficult to give thanks to God because bad things are happening for no apparent reason. There doesn't seem to be a good reason for explaining why this terrible thing has happened to us or to this family or to those children. We just don't get it. It doesn't make sense to us. And we find it extremely difficult to come to terms with the fact that God has permitted it when it seems like he shouldn't have. It's not just. One of the ways in which we can at least begin to reprocess injustice in the world is to realize that God is not running his world according to the principle of his justice right now. That's simply not how the world is working. Yeah, echoes of it, but that's not the principle that's at work. And that's what the book of Job is supposed to teach us. You know the book of Job? If you've ever read through the book of Job, here's what happens. Job is this righteous man who follows God, and God allows his life to be shattered. Like completely shattered. His property is taken from him. His children are taken from him. His health is taken from him in a satanic attack that God permits. Satan has to ask God permission in order to make this attack, the author of Job gives us the full account of the interaction in the heavenlies. Job says, the Lord has done this to me. Well, after this happens, then Job hears the counsel of three of his friends as they advise him regarding his suffering. And they say something to the effect of, it's the innocent who prosper, Job. And it's the guilty who suffer. So you must have done something wrong. And you need to repent because God would not do this to an innocent person. And Job's response to his friend and to God is, I have been a righteous person. I've been a good man. I don't know why God is doing this to me. Now, the worldview present in both in the responses of Job's friends and in Job's response, the worldview is this. God is dealing with people in terms of strict justice. You get what you deserve here on the earth. And it's simply not true. 
That is not how God is running the world right now. And as long as we expect him to order our lives that way, we're going to be very disappointed with him and unable to be thankful because God never made that promise. And believe me, you would not want him to be running it that way because no one would stand. So we should never measure God's goodness in a situation according to our demand for God's justice right now because he's not dealing that way right now. Now, just to be clear, all things will be set right in the end. God is going to bring his justice. It will prevail eventually when he restores all things in an act of cosmic transformation at the return of Jesus Christ. But people don't get what they deserve right now. There are bad things that happen to the best of us and there are good things that happen to the worst of us. So how is God running his world right now? What is the principle at work? He is doing all things according to the counsel of his perfect wisdom. It's wisdom with which he is governing the universe. When God responds to Job's complaint, he breaks into a four-chapter litany of questions to Job. One after another. Boom, boom. If you read it, it's just like you can just it's just like he's just getting shot. Boom, 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 boom. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Where were you when I commanded the morning? Can you make the heavens rain, Job? Is your eye on the life of every creature under the sun? Do you know when the badger gives birth? Do you know how to run this world, Job? And in the end, there's only one appropriate response for Job. He says... I know, this is chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, he says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. He is completely silenced because at that moment, Job is now relinquishing his demand for an explanation and bows before the wisdom of God as God governs His universe. Nothing that God is doing is without purpose. Rest assured, nothing is happening without purpose. It's all part of a wise plan that will turn out for the good of His people and it will turn out for the glory of His name. He may be withholding justice for the time being, but I think the challenge for us is to trust that God is always doing what is wise and what is good for us. And perhaps some of us need to hear that today. Perhaps you tend to doubt God's goodness and God's wisdom in the midst of suffering, in the midst of some sort of unjust situation. Perhaps God is asking you to stop insisting that He explain His government to you, which He does not have to do. And perhaps He's asking you to trust that He is wise and He knows exactly what He's doing. He knows what He's up to. And it's good. He will be glorified, and if you're in Christ, you will be very happy with it in the end. And perhaps he wants to teach us to glory in that wisdom so that we will value it and develop a thankfulness that one day he's going to make sense of all of this. Number three, 
we can be thankful for this. Broken dreams are new beginnings. What I'm thinking of here is actually closely related to the previous point because, you see, knowing that God is wise and that he's dealing with all things according to his wisdom, it doesn't only relieve the tensions for those of us who are dealing with issues of injustice, it ministers to those of us who are just simply disappointed with the way that our lives have gone. We're disappointed by our families, parents, or our children, brothers, sisters, some crazy, nasty dissension that happened 10 years ago that just destroyed the family. We're disappointed by the loss of loved ones. We're disappointed that our friends have moved away. We're disappointed with opportunities that we missed out on, should have seen when it was here. We're disappointed with failed attempts at things that we think we could, if we could do it over, we'd do it differently. We're just disappointed with that. We're disappointed that things have changed. Anybody here living in the past? You remember how good it was when you, and you've got your place, you've got your memories, that, that town you lived in, that school you went to, that girl you dated, that, you know, you've got some, you're just living, you're living in the past. You're sad about how your body has changed. You're sad about how the church has changed. You're sad about how your children have changed. You're sad about how the world has changed. Life is so full of broken dreams and unexpected and unwanted changes, to be honest. Isn't it? Just full of it. Like, year after year, it was always better back And God is orchestrating it all according to his wisdom. He is so wise in the path that he has taken you on. And, and I don't mean for that to be trite. For some of you who are maybe suffering with some sort of very recent, very deep, very confusing form of suffering, I'm not just trying to be like, hey, don't worry, God is wise. Uh, uh, it's not the first piece of counsel I would give to somebody who's, who's really affected by a recent wound. But at some point in the mourning process, it will be helpful to know that none of this is a surprise to him and none of it will be wasted. Because he's still writing the story. And the ways that we have imagined our lives, this is, catch this, the ways that we imagined our lives are stories that we made up. Not realizing that we're not the author of our lives. Contrary to popular opinion. And every time there's an unexpected change, that reality hits us. We don't realize that God has intended to take this story in a, what is to us at least, a new direction. And that's what broken expectations are. They are unexpected turns in the path that start us on a course that we did not anticipate. But they are new beginnings. 
It is the beginning of some purpose, some wise purpose determined for us by the one who, according to Ephesians 1.11, works all things according to the counsel of His will. This is not some sort of naive optimism or therapeutic way of just saying, hey, look at the bright side. This is a reminder that there really is a purpose for this. God did it for a reason. It's going somewhere. It has an ending insight for God that you will be thankful for. And sometimes that's all we need to know. God's not finished yet. He's at work in my life. He's accomplishing some purpose. And for that, we can be thankful for His wisdom and sovereign care. Hey, somebody knows where this thing is going. Thank God. And not only is He wise and directing where it's going, but these unexpected changes are an opportunity for the nearness of the Lord as well. Because in, this, in these times, when this happens, when there's an unexpected change, there's suddenly one, uh, for a lot of us at least, a sense of the loss of control which was only an illusion in the first place. But you feel it in that moment. Something unexpected happens in your life, and you're aware of the fact that I did not have control over this. Okay, God is, is, is reminding you, you are not Lord of your life. I am Lord and Master of your life. But it hurts, and God knows that, and He's compassionate. It also A lot of times with unexpected changes comes a loss of things that you have loved. Unexpectedly, I'm not going to be able to have or be with what I thought I was going to have or be with. It also comes with unexpected loss of things you were hoping for. Tightly connected to things that you love. There's a... There's a big emptiness in the heart. There's a big sorrow in the heart, disappointment in the heart. And God offers to be near to us in the absence of things hoped for. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. The nearness of God. Psalm 147, 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Or Isaiah 57:15, I dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So thank God, one, he knows what he's doing, and two, in that time of unexpected change and the loss of control, the loss of something loved, this loss of some hope that you had, in that time of change, God says, I can come near to that broken heart and be with you. I want to be near to you. So somebody knows where it's going and somebody's willing to walk with you. And we can be thankful for that. Number four, we can be thankful for this. God grows us through trial. These last two points, actually, I'm just taking straight from last year's Thanksgiving sermon that I gave at the First Baptist Church which I'm thinking a lot of you weren't there for, so that's why I can double up on it like this. This great verse in Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14.4 goes like this. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. Imagine this is a farming community. You've got oxen. They're in the 
stable or whatever. They're pooping all over the place. The manger is the feeding box. They're drooling all over the place. They're doing whatever oxen do that make them stink so bad. They're big. They're ugly. They're nasty. They stink. They're messy. And your job is day after day, you got to fill this stupid manger with all this stupid, nasty hay, and you got to clean out all the garbage that's in there from whatever the ox did last night. And where there is no oxen, the manger is clean. And that sounds pretty nice. If your job is to clean the manger each day, a clean manger sounds pretty nice. Oxen, uh, Oxen are dirty animals. But catch the second half of this this verse. Where there there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. If you're a Christian, your suffering is an ox. And it's intended to bring about some great harvest in your life. Some great fruit in your life. And for now... It's very easy to become focused on the fact that the manger is very messy. Your life is a mess because of this suffering. There is this trial in your life that you just wish you could get out of here so that the manger could be clean. Life could be simple. Things could be the way that they used to be. Things could be painless. I wish I didn't have this stupid ox. And you know, you can call it messy. You don't have to say it's not painful. You don't have to say, oh, the ox is such a clean animal. You don't have to say, oh, the stable's really clean today with all. You don't have to pretend that your suffering is some great blissful joy in your life. We can call it what it is. This is hard. Having a hard time paying the bills having a hard time because my kids are getting picked on at school. Things are tough right now. It's hard to get a job right now. You can call it what it is. But I promise you, it's going somewhere. It's not purposeless. There will be a harvest when we suffer. God uses it to bring a harvest. 2 Corinthians 4.17 This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Hey, the the harvest that you will reap will be so glorious and wonderful, you won't even care that you had a dirty manger in the end. And for this we can be thankful. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. She was paralyzed from the neck down at a very early age, like 13 or something, when she she dove off of a dock into a a lake, I think. And uh, she broke her neck, paralyzed from the neck down, and uh, she's been in a wheelchair ever since. The woman loves Jesus like very few people maybe you, you will have ever seen or experienced. You watch this woman, this quadriplegic, and when, she, when she, she spoke at a Desiring God conference several years ago, and during the worship time, she's got this little automatic wheelchair, you know? And it's like, she's like doing this during the worship time. 
in her chair. Like the chair is just like shifting back and forth like this because she's like dancing before the Lord. Well, she tells this story about what would happen if she could bring her wheelchair to heaven. She says, I know it's not theologically correct, and so I know I'm not going to be there with my wheelchair, but if I could be with the Lord together with my wheelchair, she says, this is what I'd say. Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So, listen to this, so, thank you. Thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. (laughs) I love that part. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. And number five, we can be thankful to God for this. Every day is better than what we deserve. You know what we deserve? When we think about this, what do I deserve today? Before God Almighty, what have I merited today? We have not merited our homes or our cars, our friends, our health, 30, 40, 50 years of life. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve our next breath. Far less do we deserve that because of what Christ has done on the cross, regardless of your circumstances, your conscience can be cleansed by the death of Jesus for your sins, Hebrews 9.14. Our prayers can be heard because Jesus has provided access to the Father with His sacrifice at Calvary, Hebrews chapter 10. The promises of God are ours, purchased and secured by the merits of Jesus Christ's life and death. Our hope for resurrection is certain because Jesus has already died the death that you deserve and He is the first fruits of the resurrection of your body and thousands of more benefits that we don't deserve are secured for us by what Jesus has done for us. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad the circumstances are, what God has given us is far better than what we deserve because the only thing that we have earned is an eternity in hell. That's all we deserve. You want to start dealing with God in terms of what you, you, what you have merited. Every day, so much better than what we deserve. And we can be thankful for what Christ has done for us at Calvary to give us another breath, to give us our families, to give us our friends. I'm not trying to minimize the suffering. I'm just trying to give some good reasons why in all circumstances there are reasons that we can be thankful to God.
if we will try to rethink our world a little bit through the lens of the Scriptures. A new world is coming. He is running our lives according to His good wisdom. Our broken dreams are new beginnings. Our suffering will bring great harvest. And the wrath of God has been removed. We do not have to be thankful for every circumstance. But God has given us good reasons to be thankful in the midst of all circumstances. Amen? Let's pray. True. And may they be helpful. Would you bring them to life so that they're not just words falling on soil of our the soil of our hearts, the soil of my heart, the soil of New Hope's hearts, and then bearing no fruit? Holy Spirit, would you allow us to marinate in in these? truths would you would you just let us soak in in these realities and would you do a good work of changing us reshape us from 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 within help us put to death cynicism and fear hopelessness especially today we're just praying that you would help us put to death our lack of gratitude And that you would teach us to be people who are genuinely thankful in all circumstances and then able to express that so that we give thanks to you for what you have done because you have done the good miracle in our hearts of allowing us to perceive the goodness in the way that you are running your world to which we now submit in Jesus' name.